The reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope, for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. The reading ends here. Thank you for those wonderful prayers. Um, and can I start with another prayer that's been widely disseminated in the Anglican Diocese of London this week, where campaigners from Extinction Rebellion are right now dramatically raising our awareness of the climate and ecological crises we face through large-scale civil disobedience. Creator of our common home, you fill the earth and sea and sky with life. Forgive us our neglect of your creation, the choking waste of our pollution, the damage done by careless habits and our indifference to future generations. Help us to amend our lives, to refuse more plastic if we can't reuse it, to lift our voice for lasting change, and to live well and gently on the earth. To the glory of your Son, the living Word, through whom you made this fragile world. Amen. So we begin and end with prayer in all we do under the banner of EcoChurch. So I just want to share some thoughts about how that might work out in context. Um, Anne Lamott has described uh, prayer as having three main elements, you probably know, um, help, thanks, and wow. So in that prayer we just shared, I can hear the first two. In addition to regret and repentance, there is gratitude, love, and care for this beautiful world that some have described as God's body, and hope for a better future without which we are immobilised. 
and also an open-hearted acknowledgement that we can't do this alone. We are entirely dependent on God and in need of help to find new ways of being. But what about the wow, which so often generates and enlivens the hope we need? So here's a, a wow moment. It's about a three-minute long wow moment. Unfortunately, this small Japanese pufferfish is dull, almost to the point of invisibility. But to compensate, he is probably nature's greatest artist. To grab a female's attention, he creates something that almost defies belief. His only tools are his fins. In his head, a plan of mathematical perfection. He plows the sand, breaking it up into the finest of particles. These shells aren't just rubbish to be removed. He uses them to decorate the bridges of his construction. He can't rest for more than a moment, but must work 24 hours a day for a week, or the current will destroy his creation. tidy up and his masterpiece is complete. does an animal construct something as complex and perfect as this. If this doesn't get him noticed, nothing will. So I wanted to share him with you, and he is a him, um, as an image of hope. And it just leaves me, I've seen that maybe a hundred times, and every time it just leaves me amazed. He made that work of art using just his fins and an aesthetic and spatial and mathematical capacity 
David Attenborough says in his head, but who knows where it is, <laughs> um, that we can only marvel at. So a female pufferfish may or may not, there's no guarantee, briefly visit to deposit her eggs and then disappear. If there's no eggs, or if there are eggs, our hero will then care for them and the nest for another six days before he too will abandon the site to dissolution by water. So it's incredibly temporary. He's invested everything, and there's no guarantees of his desired outcome. So a complete detachment from the beauty of, of what he's made. So we're in a climate and ecological emergency, Greta tells us, among many others. Thousands of scientists tell us. It's the defining issue of our times, and it seems to me that as people of God, our task, as well as our essential nourishment and our joy, is to help generate authentic hope and to make that hope manifest to the world in its trauma. We've just heard that hope that is seen is no hope at all. So somehow we've got to take hold of this hope that is not seen. In the community where I worship, we sometimes say that hope imagines its future and then acts as if that future is irresistible. Hope imagines its future and then acts as if that future is irresistible. This comes from the theology of an American theologian called Walter Wink. This is another way that he puts it, rooting, rooting this hopeful imagining of the future in, in intercession, as we've just done ourselves. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. If this is so, then intercession, far from being an escape from action, is a means of focusing action and of creating action. By means of our intercessions, we veritably cast fire upon the earth and trumpet the future into being. So I take that as the foundation of our, our eco-church action. And I'd just like to give you a, a quote also from what um, Vaslav Havel says about hope. I mean, he's an active intercessor, if there ever was one, um, for peace and for justice. And he says, the kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, and I would add environmental catastrophe, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. It's a dimension of the soul, not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is not prognostication. It's an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. Hope, in this deep and powerful sense, is not the same as joy that things are going well, or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The more unpropitious the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper that hope is. It's not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. So, for me, that's much less like optimism and much more like trust in the now with what we've been given and in the future that this now will become. So in this respect, I think hope growing out of wonderment, gratitude, possibility, nourishes our imaginations and calls out an authentic response. So in order to make the history we want, in Walter Wink's words, to be the best ancestors we can be, we're called now in this and every moment to take a prophetic future-oriented stance 
even if, as the poet Rumi says, it brings with it a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. So, in the short version, we're called to believe. <laughs> so to intercede, we repent and regret, then we set our sights firmly on what we can be and answer the call to action. So Rosemary asked me uh, ahead of my coming here to talk about why Christians particularly should take a lead in environmental action. So to do that, I'm going to channel um, Bishop David Atkinson, who says this really succinctly. And he argues that a, a proper understanding of our place in the planetary scheme of things flows directly from an understanding of the gospel. And that this is not a specialist interest area for some Christians, but rather one which is central to Christian belief and action in the world today. It's not an optional extra, but something for every Christian on the planet. He doesn't pull his punches when he asks, why are we in the Christian church so slow in responding to the most important moral issue of our generation, climate change? Much of the earth could be uninhabitable in 100 years' time, and the world my grandchildren inherit will be very different from today's world and a much more plain, painful place to live. And yet a large majority of Christian people are carrying on as though business is as usual. So he said this last year, so despite all of the things many authentic Christians are doing. So this is his answer. I think much Christian theology has become virtually overtaken by the view that salvation is essentially something to do with our individual souls and our journey to heaven. What has got lost is the truth of the redemption of all things in Christ, the wisdom of God in whom all things hold together, in whom all things are reconciled to God, and in whom heaven and earth are joined. We've heard that again and again in our songs and our prayers and our readings this morning. So he goes on to, to choose some biblical themes and examples which express this cosmic and holistic understanding. Here's a few of them. So John's Gospel, it launches with the word of God, understood as God's very self-expression in creation, closely followed by our inability to understand this. Through him all things were made. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. It's the world, not the humans. We know it inside out, and yet as a society we continue to behave as though God is not intimately bound up with the whole of creation, and the earth is there to resource humanity's desires. He talks about wisdom calling out, often with a female voice, as the creative presence of God in the world. In Proverbs 8, wisdom continually calls out to us, reminding us that she was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be, and continues to dwell with knowledge, prudence, discretion and understanding in the world, saying, listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. And we've just heard Paul, that clarion call in Romans chapter 8, telling us about the Spirit as God's transforming and sanctifying presence in the world, making it clear that all of creation waits in eager anticipation and all of creation will be liberated. Likewise, the salvation of God is described in cosmic terms, embracing the whole of creation in the first chapters of the letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And the resurrection of God for the whole created order 
for all things with their different bodies and different varieties of splendour is described in 1 Corinthians. So, all of these ideas are integrally linked to the Christian understanding of the state and place of humankind. To live properly as human beings, we need to be in right relationship with other people, with the planet, and with God. We are meant to be relational beings, but these relationships have been profoundly fractured by our self-centred ways of life and with deeply damaging consequences for both ourselves and the environment. So in the light of all of this, who is our neighbour? Anytime I talk about eco-church, I say it's quite simply, we're called to love our neighbour. So we need to ask, who is our neighbour? And what does it mean to really love them now at this point in history? I'm afraid I have a scientific background, so I'm going to talk some geology here. We're at the end of a long, settled Holocene geological period. A 10,000-year Goldilocks-like window of more or less balmy weather where we've had the opportunity to develop agriculture, cities, and great religions. This period is fast giving way to a much more uncertain era that's been named the Anthropocene, the first time on planet Earth where the dominant Earth-shaping force is a single species, us, Homo sapiens. It's clear that those with fewer material resources, whether they live in our own immediate communities or on the other side of the world, are our neighbours, and are to be loved as completely as we love ourselves. But to do that in this new era, we need to actively love the ecological systems that support their flourishing, their food-growing infrastructures, and their wildlands, their water sources, and air and weather. And then we begin to see that all of these things are the very same things that support our own flourishing. We know that carbon emissions here in Britain, where the Industrial Revolution began, directly impact small nation states, small island nations, as global sea levels rise. Fires in the Arctic cause release of methane from the permafrost, which drives increasingly chaotic weather systems that destroy infrastructure thousands of miles away. It sounds grim, but science also tells us about some incredible, enormous global loops. For example, 182 million tonnes of phosphorus-rich sand blows from the Sahara to the Amazon every year, nourishing the growth of forest on which the global climate depends. The rainforest really does have its roots in the desert. The presence of whales in the ocean is essential to the maintenance of the whole ecosystem as they churn nutrients throughout the water column. So in order to love our neighbours and to make good stewardship decisions today, we have to think globally in a way we have never done before as a species. We have strong and wise voices from both science and faith calling out that what we need is a transformation in the way we think and act. Rachel Carson, marine biologist and often credited with launching the modern environmental movement, says, humanity is challenged, as it has never been challenged before, to prove its maturity and its mastery, not of nature, but of itself. And the Christian Orthodox patriarch Bartholomew draws attention to the ethical and spiritual roots of environmental problems, which require that we look for solutions not only in technology, but in a change of humanity. Otherwise, we would be dealing merely with symptoms. 
As Christians, then, we are able to think about and generate hope. We have immense resources of wisdom. We understand the imperative of transformation. And we're not alone. So it's incumbent on us to lead, to love our neighbours, and to make hope manifest. But we live in Horsham. <laughs> How do we do it in our daily lives, in our own communities? One of the beauties of EcoChurch, I think, is that it recognises that we are all site-specific and that acting locally is really very important. I think of this as the genius loci, the spirit of place, different everywhere, very much about the people who live and worship locally, their needs and gifts and knowledge holding all sorts of resonances, the local history, the networks. And another beauty of EcoChurch is that it encourages us to think about every aspect of what we do and how we live. Our worship and our teaching, the buildings we inhabit, the land we live on, community and global engagement, and our personal lifestyles. And for areas of particular strength to emerge in particular places um, and be developed and then shared with other churches. It's my great privilege to be able to go around and speaking to, speak to different churches and, and learn from them. So I'd like to share a few examples um, of things that are being done in other churches for you. Um, this, is, uh, this is Marsh Green URC, and just last week they achieved an EcoChurch Gold Award. Um, they're in Kent, not far from you, and I visited them last week. They've got, a, they've got a fantastic eco team with shared responsibilities and a real sense that everything they do is church. Uh, from looking after their hens, there are two hens that just come in the church when they feel like it, <laughs> to monitoring the biodiversity on their site. They've got, a, um, they've, they've got a meadow that they've been really looking after to enhance biodiversity for about eight years now, to really taking their lifestyle seriously. And uh, I don't know if you can read that, but they've got 60 steps um, a 60-step booklet, you can see it on their, on their website, of um, things to do to monitor your lifestyle. I think that's... Yeah, there we go. Uh, you probably can't read that, but it, it's fantastic because it allows people to take charge of what they can and can't do themselves. They can tick it off, or there's even a column there that says, no way, never going to do that in my life. So it, it helps people to think about it. Uh, so that's Marsh Green. Um, this is Hillfield Priory. Um, they're in Dorset, uh, to, it's a group of Franciscan monks. Are they Franciscans? I think they are. Um, and it, they, that was the first ever gold eco-church. Um, they are amazing. I really, really recommend a visit. They welcome people to come and see them. They do everything. <laughs> the entire site is, is carbon negative. They, they generate more energy than they use. And you can see some of the things they do there. So, eco-church in village, eco-church deeply rural. Here's another one, Trinity Church in Lewis. These people are fantastic as well. They've got a really dynamic team. Um, and if you go on their website, they've got a whole lot of buttons you can click, which is much better than we are, <laughs> um, to catch up with the different things they're doing and join the different teams. And the interesting thing about them is they've got, they've got really good um, heating engineers and electricity experts in, the, in their community. They're very happy to be contacted to share ideas about how to reduce your energy footprint. Um, and finally then, this is obviously the one I know best. This is where we come from. Um, so I'd just like to say a little bit about what we do in this context of place. We're really, really inner city. 
pretty much the middle of Westminster. Um, about 12,000 people a week walk across the site. Um, traffic roars down Piccadilly 24 hours a day. Our rector who lives on site often says it's busier and noisier at three in the morning than three in the afternoon, which begs some questions about when we should have our services. Um, I wouldn't be going to any 3 a.m. ones. <laughs> so it could be easy to say that, that, you know, oh, you come from London, what we do doesn't easily translate. But I'm going to have a go at trying to translate and saying that um, let's think about the principles of doing things locally. So here we go. Uh, that's where we are. I wonder if I can point to one of them. Yeah, you can see that where it's labelled. So that's the heart of the West End. Uh, we have trees. That's St James's Square. That's Leicester Square. That's Trafalgar Square, currently full of extinction rebels. And interestingly, that one tree there, that's the international headquarters of BP in our parish. So that's an interesting local thing for us to be engaged with. Um, so clearly we don't have a site of special scientific interest nearby. We don't have an acre of vegetables growing. Um, but we're not alone in terms of green space. So how should we look at that? How do we look at our genius loci? Uh, to me, it inspires imagination in a different way than if we were in a deeply rural setting. So our churchyard has been known as the green churchyard for much of the site's history. And while the garden was redesigned in the early 50s after significant bomb damage, the seven plane trees in the garden out of an original 17, they've been there since the 1860s. They're an established forest and they have a root protection zone. So that really impacts how we think about it. So looking at that image, it makes me think about, if I get my hopeful imagination going, it makes me think about green corridors. How do we link these places up? Flight paths, birds, not planes, um, and rooftops. So connectivity is really key wherever we live. Um, and there are many others thinking along the same lines. So we're part of the Wild West End program. If I went forward. Um, we're part of the Wild West End program. We're part of this bee line. Um, and we do a lot to try and encourage birds, bees, bats back into this part of London. So we're right bang in the middle of that. That's quite a responsibility, isn't it, in terms of, in terms of place. We thought about... Um, some time ago, we thought about installing beehives on our roof, but um, luckily we took advice and we were told to provide more food for London's hungry bees rather than more housing, because there are beehives everywhere in London that you wouldn't know about. So our uh, very visionary gardener, Catherine, she set about improving the composition and the diversity of planting in our difficult patch of dry shade to maximise flowering. So we've got all that going on. We've got this going on, all of those birds. And I put the kestrel in there because we were out one day looking at the ecologist's report and a kestrel just flew in. So there's a sign of a food chain and diversity really, really working, I think. Um, we've detected all these bats flying over. We don't see them, but they've been detected. Um, and they, uh, we don't think they're roosting there, unfortunately. I know many churches would rather they didn't have bats, but we'd quite like to have some. So, really, so overall then, this idea of connectivity, I have this, this vision that one day we'll have people, hedgehogs, all sorts of things, travelling from Regent's Park in the north all the way down to the river if we had enough connectivity of roofs and green walls and all of the rest. Um, and what's happened to our ducks? Not there, never mind. Okay, 
we have a mallard that nests every year and has 12 ducklings that all inevitably get killed in the great cycle of life. So what we try and do now is to capture them and to take them to St James's Park -like Lake. So that's our position. A little bit about what we do in terms of worship and teaching, because we take this on as our specialist thing, really. Um, we, we host a lot of talks, but we, do, we start everything with, our, with worship. We go outside whenever we possibly can. Um, Easter, Pentecost, Maundy Thursday, we do ashing in the, in the courtyard, catching passerbys as they go. Um, so that's the basis, really, of what we do. And here's another outside one. And here's another. We've lost the other outside one. Let's go back. Okay. We've gone a bit out of order here. Excuse me for a second. All right, let's do these ones. So we go outside, um, we do this visual thing. Because so many people uh, are just passing through our site, sorry, I'm messing this up, um, we, uh, we, we do quite a lot of artwork and installation. So this is a block of ice which we installed in 2015 uh, during COP21. Uh, we ran a whole pilgrimage of Paris series of activities throughout the year. This, this block of ice was frozen in an oil drum, then we sawed it out, put it on top of another oil drum, and throughout a whole weekend, it took a whole weekend to melt while the meeting was going on, and it just went drip, drip, drip it micro with microphones in the drum so that it was deliberately disruptive and across all the services and everything going on, you could just hear this ominous drip, drip, drip. Um, we hope to do that again next year when we're, when we're looking at Glasgow hosting the next... Um, COP meeting. It's an opportunity for all of us to get involved, I think. Here's another of our artworks. This is very recent. This was um, at Easter. So, so Extinction Rebellion, we could touch on that. It's, you, people obviously have very different ideas about this, but we are in the middle of it, so it doesn't behove us to ignore it. So we did this during the last Extinction Rebellion protests um, to acknowledge that, that this was going on. Um, and this was another, this was about the blessing creation. So if any of you have ever been to Santiago de Compostela, you'll know that, that image. So our, the same artist, Sarah Mark, made this um, as part of a big celebration day we had. We bless our cyclists. It's no mean thing to cycle in inner London. <laughs> so those who cycle to church deserve a blessing. We, uh, we bless animals every year as well. Um, and here's an outdoor liturgy. Once a month, we meet early in the morning and we, uh, we hold our liturgy in the garden and we, we join that song of praise of the whole of creation that, was, that we sang about before by holding the liturgy in the garden. So it's not about bringing our indoor liturgy outside, it's about going outside and seeing what, seeing what we develop outside. Okay, and there's a, there's a wordle of prayers that we developed on Earth Day. You can see that on our website. And here's another little thing we do. We run a whole series of things that we call eco-pilgrimages. Um, this one is in uh, Rain and Marshes, which is a bird reserve. Um, other ones, we've been to Winchester to hear recent thinking in environmental theology. We've been to the Royal Society, which is in our parish, to hear about science. We've been to BedZed, Zero Energy Development. And we're hoping to visit NEP um, rewilding project not far from here um, 
next year. It's about informing, learning, keeping people educated. Okay. Um, I'm not going to go on a lot about uh, energy, but this is what the whole of the Church of England says. 42% by 2020. We've already um, achieved that in our church. Um, nationally, we are saying carbon neutral by 2050. Many people are saying that's way too late now. But nationally, the Church of England is saying carbon neutral by 2050. And then carbon offset may be a thing that you have or have not thought about, but um, once you've reduced your energy as much as you possibly can, then it's possible to contribute to schemes that will grow trees or support projects overseas um, to offset the rest of your um, energy. So that's a few ideas. I think just to return to um, the prayer which, which underpins everything, I just want to... Uh, oh, there's the ducks. <laughs> mother, mother duck. Oop, where's our prayer? There we go. So I wonder if we could just finish with this prayer from St Francis, which really, uh, for me, is about the wow of, of the natural world. Such love does the sky now pour that whenever I stand in a field... I have to wring out the light when I get home. Amen to that. Mm.